Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damien Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, October 25th, and here's what's on the docket this week. We finally got some answers to lingering questions about Biogen's much-discussed treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And it turns out that those answers only raise more questions. We'll discuss why. The midterm elections are fast approaching. Stat Washington correspondent Lev Fasher joins us to talk about what he's been hearing on the campaign trail. Modern science means kids with ultra-rare diseases can get drugs tailor-made for them and them alone. We'll talk about two stories that came out this week that opened a window into that promise while also highlighting just how hard it is. And last but not least, we'll bring you another lightning round. This week, that'll mean hot takes on earnings season in biotech, judgment day for a controversial depression drug, and the David and Goliath of genomics sequencing. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. Alzheimer's disease affects more than 5 million Americans. And despite spending billions of dollars on hundreds of projects, the drug industry has yet to come up with anything that actually delays the effects of the disease. And so whenever there's even a glimmer of hope, it's international news. Which brings us to Biogen, which made headlines around the world over the summer when it said it got some positive results in a clinical trial on a new drug. Those results led to a lot of skepticism over just how positive the trial was. And this week, we got some answers. That's right. So the drug in question is called BAN2401. And as you mentioned, back in July, Biogen and its partner ASI told the world that patients in a trial who got the highest dose of BAN2401 saw their Alzheimer's disease progress at a rate slower than those who got placebo. So what drove all the skepticism? So the problem was that the patients who got the drug weren't identical to the ones who got placebo. There's a genetic mutation called APOE4, and if you have it, you're about three times more likely to get Alzheimer's than if you don't. In Biogen's trial, about 70% of patients on placebo were APOE4 positive. However, in the group that got the high dose, the one that seemed to work, that number was just 30%. So Damien, the concern would be that the positive results were because of genetics and not because the drug works. Exactly. So Biogen and Isai promised to basically defend the drug's honor by digging into the data, and that's exactly what they did this week. But judging from Biogen's stock price, that defense did not seem to convince very many doubters. Damien, what happened? So Biogen went deep into the results, and they came up with an interesting conclusion. It turns out patients with APOE4 mutations actually did better on BAN2401 than patients without. So in theory, that should dispel any concerns about the results being skewed. The problem was that conclusion was based on just 10 patients with the genetic mutation who got BAN2401 at that high dose. And that's out of more than 800 patients in the trial as a whole. So Damien, what does that mean for BAN2401? Are the results still technically positive? So the reaction among scientists in the room at the presentation seemed to be one mostly of befuddlement. 
that is just way too small of a number, 10 patients, to draw any definitive conclusions. And more than one scientist said, really, the only way we'll know for sure is to do another large randomized trial that accounts for all of this stuff beforehand so that we're not left again digging through the data months after the fact. Okay, so looking ahead, what happens next, Damien? So Biogen and I have said they're still talking to regulators around the world about what to do next. And that means basically about what a new clinical trial might look like. And so that means it'll be years probably before we get a definitive answer on Band 2401. But I do think it's fair to say that the world's expectations have been recalibrated. Midterm elections are less than two weeks away. And in the race to the finish line, politicians are doing a lot of talking in their stump speeches about drug companies. Joining us today to talk about some of the most interesting midterm races of the season is Lev Fasher. He's a Washington correspondent for STAT, and he's been spending a lot of time on the campaign trail. Lev, thank you for joining us. It's very exciting, guys. Thanks for having me. So most recently, Lev traveled to the increasingly red state of Missouri. There, incumbent Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill has been facing off in what's looking like a really tough race against a Republican challenger. While he was there, Lev covered a McCaskill rally in a St. Louis suburb and recorded McCaskill's speech. Let's listen in to what McCaskill told the crowd. You know, somebody asked me who is in the middle of my dartboard. I said, I'll tell you who's in the middle of my dartboard. That's Big Pharma. You know who's in the middle of their dartboard? You. Me. (laughs) Lev, what did you make of the way McCaskill is campaigning? I thought the remarkable thing was it's not just that Claire McCaskill is marching around Missouri, barnstorming the state, talking about how evil the pharmaceutical industry is. It's the fact that she was doing it and weaving in a real and a detailed policy platform on drug pricing and the fact that she was doing it without putting her voters to sleep. She's talking to people about Part D negotiation to wild applause. She's talking to people about a potential bill not just to force price disclosures in direct-to-consumer advertising, but to ban drug companies from direct-to-consumer advertising altogether. It's really remarkable, not just the the tone she's taking about the industry, but the, the enthusiasm she's getting as she talks about policy really specifically, and in some cases, pretty wonky stuff that you think just doesn't really make for rah-rah campaign moments. So Lev, we're recording this Thursday morning, and as we sit here, we're kind of waiting for a Trump speech this afternoon where he's going to outline a plan to use international reference pricing as a way to kind of lower Medicare drug spending. Based on your reporting, do you think that this is something that McCaskill would support? I haven't spoken to McCaskill about the specifics of what Trump is rolling out today with Alex Azar, but the the general sentiment that pharmaceutical companies are gouging Americans, if you will, because of the flexibility they have in foreign markets is certainly something that doesn't seem to be a partisan talking point. There seems to be agreement there. And McCaskill, more broadly, she's not campaigning as as a sworn enemy of Donald Trump. And actually, she's she's spoken about the administration's willingness to work with her on the issue of drug prices. So it, it would be very interesting to see what role she'd play if reelected and, and whether the administration can get behind some of her legislation, whether she would continue to support some of the administration's policies. Uh, and we've already seen that with uh, one of the gag clause bills that, that she was a, a lead co-sponsor of that the president signed just this month. So now let's move to a different U.S. Senate race, this one also pitting an incumbent Democrat against a Republican challenger, and that's in West Virginia. So Lev, you wrote a story recently about how a Republican political group is trying to turn that race into a referendum on which candidate is more beholden to the pharmaceutical industry. Can you tell us more about that? 
Yeah, it's it's a pretty bold play on the part of a of a super PAC that's aligned with Mitch McConnell, the the Republican Senate leader, and they're basically bashing the incumbent senator Joe Manchin, who's one of the more moderate, one of the more conservative Democrats, and who's facing one of the tougher reelection races in a really strong state for President Trump, and. It so happens that he is the father of Heather Bresch, the CEO of Mylan, the company infamous for EpiPen price hikes. So obviously that's not a popular thing. You've already seen a Republican campaign group send a man dressed as a six foot tall EpiPen costume with some egregious price tag attached to his costume to a mansion photo op here in D.C., But it's a pretty bold play for Republicans because their nominee in that race, Patrick Morrissey, is a a longtime lobbyist for not just the Healthcare Distribution Alliance, which is the trade group for drug distributors here in D.C., but a number of other pharmaceutical manufacturers. He's married to Denise Morrissey, who has as of this year, actually, been one of Bio's lead lobbyists in D.C. and has also lobbied for Cardinal Health, one of the big three drug distributors that there's a lot of oversight work going on over the, the role that Cardinal and other drug distributors have played in furthering the opioid crisis in West Virginia. So two candidates with, with kind of almost comical ties to the pharmaceutical industry, but pretty bold play for, for Republican campaign groups and, and super PACs to try to win this election on, on the back of the idea that Joe Manchin is too beholden to the pharmaceutical industry. So regular listeners of this podcast may recall one of our previous guests, David Mitchell. He's the leader of the super PAC, Patients for Affordable Drugs, which is intervening in midterms races to try to elevate the issue of drug pricing. The group just announced this week that it spent a total of $10 million supporting or opposing politicians on the drug pricing issue. Lev, what's your read on this group strategy? So, Rebecca, you and I wrote about this a a few weeks ago, and and David has really adamantly and repeatedly said, we're not trying to win races here. We're not trying to shift outcomes. We're trying to change the tone of whether it's okay to accept campaign contributions from the pharmaceutical industry, whether it's okay to vote in the pharmaceutical industry's interests. And this goes across parties. A lot of the candidates that the group has weighed in to oppose, you know, we wrote a a good example is Anna Eshua, a really deeply entrenched California Democrat who happens to be one of the industry's favorite uh, recipients of campaign cash. You know, it's hard to say a little less than than two weeks before the midterms whether what they're doing is working because it's such a long-term play. I will say it'll be interesting to see how they fare in in the closer races, and there are only a few that they've weighed in on. One is Bruce Poliquin, a Republican congressman from Maine. He's kind of perpetually in in a tight re-election race in his district. And Claire McCaskill is, is another race where they've paid for polling. They've weighed in extensively with radio ads. So it'll be interesting to see whether Patients for Affordable Drugs can be that little extra push to get a candidate across the finish line or to defeat an endangered incumbent. But in terms of their broader strategy, I think it'll take actually years to know whether it is impacting someone like Anna Eshoo's outlook about whether she should continue to take all that health industry money. So Lev, as you mentioned, we are now two weeks out from the midterms, and we would love to have you back on shortly after Election Day to break down what actually takes place. I would love it. Treating rare diseases has gone from a niche biotech idea to a cornerstone of the global drug industry, turning the likes of Genzyme and Alexion into multi-billion dollar companies. 
But there's a question about what happens when the disease is so rare that developing a drug for it doesn't look like a business at all. This week, our colleague Megan Akeshevan brought us the story of Mila. She's a girl with a rare form of an already rare disease. You should absolutely read that story. But if you haven't, here's a clip from the video that Mila's family posted on the crowdfunding website GoFundMe about two years ago. We noticed that Mila was getting stuck on her words. She would say, Mommy, Mommy, I have to. Mommy, I have to. And not be able to continue. And then suddenly, around three years old, we started noticing that her feet were slightly unturned and she was walking strangely. You know, we took her around to different doctors who never could really kind of figure out what was going on with her. And then time passes, and then in just one month, everything can change. She could no longer see anything. Mila was soon diagnosed with an ultra-rare neurodegenerative disorder called Batten disease. After Mila's diagnosis, her parents eventually got in touch with a neurologist at Boston Children's Hospital. Over the course of the next year, scientists developed a drug specifically for Mila and got the FDA's permission to test it on her. And the best part is that Mila's family says they're already seeing results from that treatment. So obviously this is an amazing story, but it's very much worth pointing out that according to the scientists involved, Mila's drug is unlikely to help anyone but Mila. Because it targets a specific genetic mutation, even other patients with the same rare disease probably wouldn't benefit. On a related subject, Antonio Regalado over at MIT Tech Review examined the broader issue of ultra-rare diseases in a story this week. Basically, biotech companies just don't see much of a business case in diseases that only affect a handful of patients. And that creates a lot of situations like Mila's, in which parents are spending their own money, often raised on crowdfunding websites, to try to get their kids into one-patient trials of unapproved treatments. So what do we make of this phenomenon? I think it's really interesting, um, and it fits in with sort of biotech's recent history in rare diseases. In the early going, you could say that all of the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, which is to say rare diseases that were fairly prevalent and that could be targeted with the science that we understand so far, those have all been kind of picked off by some of the companies we mentioned at the top of the show. And so that means some of these other ultra-rare diseases, like Mila's, that affect, you know, maybe fewer than 100 patients all over the world, companies have a harder time making the case of investing in them. And that kind of leaves us in the situation that we've been describing, where there isn't really a wide pipeline of treatments that might one day make life better or cure these diseases for for those who have them. And that's such an interesting point, Damien, because I think it raises the question of what is the right level of rare disease? As you pointed out, you know, these rare diseases that are only moderately rare have become such a booming business for biotech. You hear all the time about how much money there is to be made in some of these rare diseases. But you can't be too rare, right? It has to be the right level of rare in order to make a business case for it. Right. And absent interest from the drug industry and investment from the drug industry, we're left with a system that, you know, I don't think anybody would say is ideal, which is where, you know, these parents are either using money that they have because they're independently wealthy or raising money from crowdfunding sites in order to get their kids into trials and they're reaching out to scientists and all this requires an incredible amount of time and resources and thus it's probably only available to those of means and that risks creating, you know, a system of haves and have-nots that I don't think anybody would say is desirable or, or even sustainable. 
So, Adam, what does Wall Street think about all of this? You know, you can look at it in two different ways. I think investors like when these companies present data on a tiny number of patients that looks really positive, and stocks tend to go up a lot on that. But then when those companies develop these drugs and they get approved, it becomes very difficult to make a business out of this. I mean, you can look at a company like Spark Therapeutics, which has a gene therapy that's approved for a rare form of blindness. And they're treating, I mean, literally just a handful of patients. And I think people are sort of coming to grips with the, that the business side of this is really challenging. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Spark Therapeutics, Adam. Recently, I got a press release from the company that I thought was pretty intriguing. And and they are starting up a new effort to try to promote genetic testing for people who have inherited retinal diseases, uh, one of the rare diseases that they're targeting. And I think it really shows how desperate companies like Spark are to kind of find the right patients in these rare patient populations. You know, they have to push patients to get genetically tested to kind of pull them out of the woodwork uh, as potential clinical trial enrollees or potential patients to take a, a drug that might make it onto the market. And this is the trend that I think we really need to sort of watch very closely moving forward because we're getting to the point now where we actually have companies that are competing against each other to develop therapies for really rare diseases. So I think you're going to start asking yourself, you know, do we have too many drugs and too few patients? And that moment you've all been waiting for, it's another lightning round. So first up this week, let's talk about earnings for the third quarter that have been coming out recently. Adam, what have you been watching for? Right now, earnings, generally speaking, have been pretty good. I mean, don't you agree with me, Damien, that it looks like companies are sort of doing what they need to be doing operationally, although that maybe not translating into any kind of stock performance. Yeah, I would say it's been boring, but it's been boring in a way that biotech, considering how bruised it has been in recent weeks and months, will be happy to accept. Nothing has caught fire. Everything is going as planned. And stocks are going crazy. On Wednesday, the biotech index fell 7%, huge drop. And then as we're recording this, biotech stocks are rebounding and they're up 4%. Now that's going to change a lot when you listen to this podcast, but it just goes to show you that there's just a ton of volatility out there. So meanwhile, in the world of genomic sequencing, there is a brewing David and Goliath story taking place. Rebecca, what is going on between Illumina and its new competitor? In some ways, this is a David and Goliath story, uh, where Illumina, the genomics giant, is the sort of Goliath of the U.S. sequencing market. But BGI, that's a Chinese company that has been around for quite a while, uh, worked on the Human Genome Project uh, way back in the day, but has become kind of a more aggressive global competitor. BGI just put out a new sequencer. And I think what's interesting about this dynamic is BGI is being watched for its moves into the United States at a time when there's a trade war brewing with China. There's a lot of suspicion about data quality and integrity, even as the biotech sector there, as we've talked about before, is really booming. But I think it's worth watching BGI uh, for whether it can turn around a history of unfulfilled promises and become a real player uh, in the United States. And finally, a long and complicated regulatory saga is likely to end soon. Adam, what is happening with Alchemies? Yeah, right. So on November 1st, the FDA is holding an advisory committee meeting, and they're going to review a drug from Alchemies that aims to treat treatment-resistant depression. And as I wrote in a preview of this panel this week, 
the clinical data on this drug are really messy. Right. So some studies failed, some studies succeeded, one study was narrowly negative, and Alchemies is making the case that the quote-unquote totality of the data are reason enough to approve this drug. What do people think about its odds in front of regulators? Yeah, and I would add on top of all that, this drug is actually a kind of proprietary formulation of an opioid. So you've got sort of all those sort of opioid safety and abuse liability issues to sort of throw on top of a lot of messy clinical data. I mean, right now, I think people are skeptical that this is going to get, uh, you know, sort of a positive nod from the FDA panel. But at the same time, the FDA historically has been somewhat lenient when it comes to psychiatric drugs, just because clinical trials of psychiatric drugs in diseases like depression tend to be complicated and messy. And as a plug, Damien and Adam will be tracking the FDA advisory panel meeting. So follow them on Stat Plus if you're looking for live updates on the day of the meeting. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. A big thank you to Hyacinth Epinato, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you think about this episode, what you like, what you don't like. You can send us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. We read them and we appreciate them. See you next week. 